Section 1B, Dawn of Flight, Early Days of Aviation, First Air War, and the 1920s and 1930s Air Power. The Dawn of Flight The dream of flight recurs in myth and legend from ancient times, but not until two French brothers, Joseph Michael and Jacques-Étienne Montgolfier, launched a hot air balloon on 15 October 1783 with passenger Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier, did man first fly. The military potential of aviation was noted in 1794, when the French aerostatic corps balloons accompanied the armies of the French Revolution until 1798. In September 1861, a balloon corps provided aerial observation for the Union Army during the American Civil War. However, the early balloons proved fragile, vulnerable to weather, and of limited value. Aviation languished in the United States, but in Europe balloons, gliders, and aerodynamics advanced rapidly. By 1853, Britain's Sir George Cayley created a glider with fixed wings, cambered airfoil, and horizontal and vertical stabilizers. Continuing Cayley's work, German engineer Otto Lilienthal produced flying machines similar to today's hand gliders. From 1891 until his death five years later, Lilienthal greatly advanced aerodynamic theory. The publicity generated by Lilienthal spurred on imaginative people on both sides of the Atlantic, including Orville and Wilbur Wright. The Wrights further Lilienthal's experiments with the assistance of American Octave Chanute, whose book, Progress in Flying Machines, provided their foundation in aerodynamics. From 1900 to 1902, the Wrights conducted more than 1,000 glides from Kill Devil Hills near Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. After perfecting wing warping, elevators and rudders, and a water-cooled engine, they attempted the first powered flight on 14 December 1903. On that try, the aircraft stalled upon takeoff and crashed three seconds later. Success came at 10.35 on 17 December 1903 when Orwell Wright flew 120 feet in 12 seconds. Alternating pilot duties, the brothers made three more flights with Wilbur flying 852 feet and staying aloft 59 seconds on the fourth attempt. American military authorities rejected the Wright's flyer reacting in part to the highly publicized failure of Samuel P. Langley's steam-powered aerodrome in October 1903. Although a highly respected scientist and secretary of the Smithsonian Institute, Langley and the Army were subjected to public ridicule and congressional criticism for the waste of a $50,000 government grant. Only when President Theodore Roosevelt intervened was an aeronautical division established in the United States Army's Signal Corps on 1 August 1907. With the establishment of an aeronautical division, the Army was in possession of several balloons. The Army required trained enlisted men to conduct balloon inflations and effect necessary repairs. Effective 2 July 1907, Eddie Ward and Jason Barrett reported to the Leo Stevens Balloon Factory in New York City. They would become the first enlisted men assigned to the Signal Corps' small aeronautical division, which in time evolved into the United States Air Force Enlisted Corps. When Ward and Barrett reported, the division did not officially exist. The Army had disbanded the minuscule Civil War balloon service in 1863, 
and the Corps' attempts to revive military aviation met with little success. At the balloon factory, the two men were schooled in the rudiments of fabric handling, folding and stitching, in the manufacturing of buoyant gases, and in the inflation and control of the Army's, quote, aircraft. On 13 August 1907, Ward and Barrett were ordered to report to Camp John Smith outside Norfolk, Virginia, to participate in the Jamestown Exposition celebrating the 300th anniversary of the First Settlement of Virginia. Over the next few years, the detachment participated in numerous air shows and moved from location to location. Barrett left the Army to complete a career in the Navy, but the enlisted detachment was soon expanded to include eight others. These nine men were the nucleus from which America's enlisted air arm grew. They were the first of a small band of enlisted airmen who, during the decade before World War I, shared in the experimental and halting first steps to establish military aviation as a permanent part of the nation's defense. Never numbering more than a few hundred individuals, the enlisted crews of the Signals Corps Aeronautical Division provided day-to-day -day support for a handful of officer pilots learned the entirely new skills of airplane mechanician, and later mechanic, rigger, and fitter, met daunting transportation and logistical challenges, and contributed mightily to the era's seat-of-the-pants technological advancements. A few enlisted men, against official and semi-official military prejudice, learned to fly. The majority of enlisted men were absorbed in the tasks of getting the fragile balloons and even flimsier planes of the day into the air and keeping them there. Of necessity flexible and innovative, early crews often had to rebuild aircraft from the ground up after every crash. And in those days of early flight, crashes were the rule rather than the exception. Enlisted crews not only repaired the planes, they labored to make some of the more ill-designed craft airworthy in the first place. The Early Days of the United States Army Aviation, 1907-1917 through 1917. By December 1907, the new Aeronautical Division of the Signal Corps established specifications for an American military aircraft. The flying machine had to carry two people, with a combined weight of 350 pounds or less, and fly for 125 miles at an average speed of 40 miles per hour MPH. The Army received 41 bids, but only one, submitted by the Wright brothers, produced a flyable aircraft. By September 1908, the Wright Type A military flyer flew for more than an hour at a maximum altitude of 310 feet, carrying the first military observer, Lieutenant Frank P. Lamb. A subsequent test on 17 September 1908 resulted in the first military aviation fatality. Lieutenant Thomas E. Selfridge. On 30th July 1909, Pilot Orville Wright and Lieutenant Benjamin D. Fulois flew from Fort Myer to Alexandria, Virginia, at an average speed of 42.6 miles an hour. The Army accepted the plane 2 August 1909 and awarded the Wrights $25,000 and a $5,000 bonus. The United States Army earlier operations were not promising. In October 1909, Wilbur Wright trained Lieutenants Frank P. Lamb and Frederick E. Humphreys to fly. On 26 October, they were the first Army pilots to fly solo. By 5 November, they crashed the Army's plane and within weeks were transferred out of aviation. In March 1910, Lieutenant Fulois received orders to become the Signals Corps pilot. 
Chief of the Signal Corps, General James Allen, told him, quote, Don't worry, you'll learn the techniques as you go along. Just take plenty of spare parts and teach yourself to fly, end quote. United States military aviation was falling behind Europe. By the end of 1911, the French had produced 353 aviators versus 26 American pilots, of whom only eight were military. By 1913, France and Germany each had spent $22 million on military aviation, Russia spent $12 million, and even Belgium spent $2 million, compared to just $430,000 for the United States. Increased appropriations over the ensuing two years allowed the Army to purchase more aircraft. By October 1912, the Aeronautical Division had 11 aircraft, 14 flying officers, and 39 enlisted mechanics. On 28 September 1912, one of these mechanics, Corporal Frank Scott, became the first enlisted person to die in an accident in a military aircraft. A crew chief, Scott was flying as a passenger when the aircraft's pilot lost control and the aircraft dived to earth. Scott Field, now Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, was named in his honor. On 5 March 1913, the first Aero Squadron, Provisional, was activated becoming the oldest Air Force Squadron. After years of testing, improvising, and operating on little more than dedication and a shoestring, Army Aviation finally received official status by the passage of United States House Resolution 5304 on 18 July 1914. This bill authorized the Signal Corps to establish an aviation section consisting of 60 officers and 260 enlisted men. The bill created the Military Rating of Aviation Mechanician, which called for a 50% pay increase for enlisted men, quote, instructed in the art of flying, end quote, while they were on flying status. The number of such personnel was limited to 40 and the law specified that no more than a dozen enlisted men could be trained as aviators. America's first aviation combat experience demonstrated that the air arm was not prepared. After Francisco Pancho Villa's Mexican forces raided Columbus, New Mexico in March 1916, President Woodrow Wilson ordered the 1st Aero Squadron to accompany a force he was organizing to protect the border and to apprehend Pancho Villa. The squadron, commanded by Captain Foulois, sought to provide aerial scouting for the ground forces. Mustering 11 pilot officers, 82 enlisted men, and one civilian mechanic, the squadron departed from San Antonio with eight Curtis JN-3 Jennies, 10 trucks, and 6 motorcycles. On the train, Foulois picked up two enlisted hospital corpsmen. An officer and 14 enlisted men of the engineering section joined them. In spite of the 1st Aero Squadron's reconnaissance flights and several deliveries of mail and dispatches, readily apparent was the squadron's JN-type aeroplane was not powerful enough to operate the 5,000-foot elevations of the Casa Grande, and mountain weather, dust, and extreme temperatures wrecked havoc with Foulois' underpowered, dilapidated Curtis JN-3 Jennies. By 19 April, only two of the eight planes were in working condition. The rest had fallen victim to landing accidents and forced landings, and all had suffered from the heat and sand. After 11 months of fruitless campaigning, the so-called punitive expedition was recalled in February 1917, and Villa continued to lead rebels in northern Mexico until 1920. Yet poorly equipped as it was, 
the first Aero Squadron had acquitted itself admirably. In his final report on the mission, Major Fulois praised his pilots, who because of poor climbing characteristics of the aircraft could not carry sufficient food or even adequate clothing. Fulois also commended the willingness of his pilots to fly clearly dangerous aircraft. He did not neglect the enlisted personnel. He praised them for their dedication and willingness to work day and night to keep the aircraft flying. If the performance was admirable, the fact remains that the results of his first demonstration of American air power were deeply disappointing. Yet Fulois and the others learned valuable lessons about the realities of aviation under field conditions. Adequate maintenance was essential, as were plenty of backup aircraft, which could be rotated into service while other airplanes were removed from the line and repaired. Enlisted and civilian mechanics faced a myriad of problems. In particular, the laminated wood propellers pulled apart. In response, the mechanics developed a humidor facility to maximize the life of the props. Army brass persisted in discouraging the training of enlisted men, and if not for officers such as Billy Mitchell and Hap Arnold, who develop a deep and abiding respect for enlisted personnel in military aviation, there probably would have been even fewer enlisted aviators than the law allowed. The Signal Corps authority to train more enlisted men was largely through the efforts of Mitchell and the National Defense Act of 3 June 1916. When the United States entered World War I, however, there were no more than a dozen non-officers qualified as pilots. The First Air War Aircraft and aerial warfare evolved during the First World War. 1914 through 1918. Observation, artillery spotting, and reconnaissance emerged as the airplane's most important war missions. By 1915, pursuit aircraft were developed to deny the enemy use of the air. After early attempts to down enemies with handguns, French pilot Roland Garros attached steel plates to the propeller of his Moraine Saulnier Type L monoplane enabling him to fire a machine gun through the propeller arc. He earned wide acclaim as the war's first ace. When engine trouble forced Garros to land behind enemy lines on 19 April 1915, the Germans studied his innovation. Dutch-born Anthony Fokker then created the first true fighter plane, the Fokker Eindecker. Using an interrupter gear to enable a machine gun to fire through the propeller, by the end of World War I, airmen had pioneered most of today's aerial missions, including photographic reconnaissance, close air support for ground troops, battlefield interdiction, and day and nighttime strategic bombardment. The German Air Service inaugurated long-range strategic bombardment as early as 1915 with their massive Zeppelin dirigibles. Despite the importance of reconnaissance and artillery spotting, fighter pilots captured the public's imagination. Newspapers portrayed the daring, skill, and chivalry of the Knights of the Air. Following Roland Garros, the French produced such aces as René Fonck with 75 kills and Georges Guynemer with 54 aerial victories. Like the Allies, Germany publicized aces to foster public support for the war effort. Germany's first ace, Max Immelmann developed a revolutionary technique to reverse direction of an aircraft in flight. The technique still bears his name. Manfred von Richthofen, perhaps the most famous ace of all, 
flew a scarlet Fokker triplane, earning him the name the Red Baron. Shortly after his 80th victory, Richthofen was shot down and killed on 21 April 1918. Not to be outdone by the French and Germans, Britain exulted in the exploits of fighter pilots. Britain's leading ace with 73 kills was Edward McManock, who was killed by ground fire while aiding a novice wingman. As early as 1915, Americans flew in the European war, both with the French and with the British, though it was the American-manned Lafayette Escadrille of France that earned the greatest and most enduring fame. The French Air Service established the Escadrille Américaine for American volunteers on 21 March 1916. Later renamed the Lafayette Escadrille, this squadron flew French Newport 17 fighters and provided valuable experience when the United States entered the war. French-born American Raoul Lufberry shot down 17 German planes before transferring to the American Air Service, where he commanded the famous Hat in the Ring 94th Aero Squadron before his death on 19 May 1918. A little acknowledged fact about the Lafayette Escadrille is the roster of aviators included an enlisted man who was also an African-American. One of the very few enlisted Americans to fly in the war, Corporal Eugene Bullard was awarded the Croix de Guerre, one of 15 decorations from the French government, and was wounded four times before the Legion gave him a disability discharge. During his convalescence in Paris, he bet an American $2,000 that he could learn to fly and become a combat aviator. Corporal Bullard won the bet by completing training and joining the Lafayette Escadrille. Styling himself the Black Swallow of Death, he claimed two victories. Despite his record of daring and dedication, he was grounded at the request of American officers attached to the Escadrille. When the Escadrille pilots were reorganized and incorporated into the American Expeditionary Force, Bullard was denied the officer's commission accorded to other American Escadrille aviators and most of the handful of white enlisted men who had earned their wings in regular United States Army outfits. Of the 767 United States pilots and 481 observers in action in 1918, Captain Edward V. Eddy Rickenbacker and Lieutenant Frank Luke Jr. achieved the most fame. Rickenbacker was a renowned race car driver before the war. Older than most pilots, the 28-year-old became America's ace of aces with 26 confirmed kills. Frank Luke was the only pilot awarded the Medal of Honor during the war. Rickenbacker would be awarded one in 1931. Known as the Arizona Balloon Buster, Luke downed 14 German balloons and 4 aircraft in 17 days. His spectacular career ended on 29 September 1918 during a solo attack when he shot down 3 enemy balloons and 2 aircraft before enemy ground fire forced him down. Seriously wounded, he died with a pistol in his hand. Enlisted men flew before, during, and after World War I, but their status remained vague. On 22nd January 1919, the commanding officer of the Air Mechanics School at Kelly Field sought to clarify the situation by asking the officer of military aeronautics for a definition of enlisted aviator and aerial flyer. The Kelly commanding officer wanted to know who exactly was entitled to wear the enlisted aviator insignia on the upper right shoulder of his tunic. The reply came on 31 January, quote, 
you are advised that although uniform regulations and specifications provide for an insignia to be worn by enlisted aviators, the grade itself has never been created and consequently, there is no one in the service entitled to wear the insignia provided for such grade. End quote. In other words, enlisted aviators who had served as instructors, ferry pilots, test pilots, and mechanical flight check pilots did not exist, at least not officially. Vernon Berger and the handful of World War I enlisted aviators who immediately followed him were the first of some 3,000 enlisted personnel who would fly between the wars and into the early months of World War II. The military withheld official flying status from these men until Congress enacted Public Law 99 in 1941, which provided for training enlisted aviation students who were awarded the rating of pilot and warranted as a staff sergeant. Late in 1942, however, Congress passed the Flight Officer Act, Public Law 658, which automatically promoted sergeant pilots produced by the Staff Sergeant Pilot Program to flight officers. Thus, the cockpit was effectively reserved for the commissioned. One enlisted pilot, Sergeant William C. Ochner, inspired to fly by watching Vernon Berg, received his commission in January 1917 and commanded a flight school in Pennsylvania. However, before this, his flying skills made Ochner a valuable commodity in the aviation section. Known as the father of blind flight, Ochner flight-tested modified aircraft, served as a flight instructor, and was hand-picked to scout various parcels for future airfields near the Potomac River. One of the tracks he selected became Bowling Field, Washington, District of Columbia. Master Sergeant George H. Holmes was the last of about 2,500 men who graduated from enlisted pilot training. He became a pilot in 1921 and was eventually promoted to lieutenant colonel during World War II. When the war ended, he chose to revert his enlisted rank of master sergeant. He was the last enlisted pilot to serve and retire in 1957. In addition to the specialized roles directly associated with flying, Air Service enlisted personnel performed a wide variety of general support functions in administration, mess, transport, and the medical corps. Construction personnel, who built the airfields, hangars, barracks, and other buildings, were often the first enlisted men stationed at various overseas locations. World War I airmen were not combat soldiers as such, but enlisted men who stood guard and operated base defense. Given the static nature of the war, there was relatively little danger of a base being overrun by ground troops. Air attacks, however, happened frequently. Aerial bombardment and strafing techniques improved later in the war, and enlisted men received training in the operation of anti-aircraft machine guns. Enlisted personnel also served as observers for both the aircraft and balloon corps. In this capacity, Sergeant Fred C. Graveline of the 20th Aero Squadron was able to receive the Distinguished Flying Cross. Graveline served as an observer and aerial gunner from 30 September to 5 November 1918 on 15 missions in the back seat of a DH-4. In one 35-minute battle in which Graveline remarked, quote, he aged 10 years, he helped drive off nearly two dozen German planes shooting down two. While he was not an ace, William Billy Mitchell emerged as one of the outstanding American air combat commanders of the war, in essence the first combined forces air component commander, as he directed British, French, and American air power. 
supremely confident about the efficacy of air power, Mitchell sometimes clashed with his superiors, including aviation pioneer General Fulois. Nevertheless, Fulois recognized Mitchell's leadership and recommended him for the top command position, Chief of Air Service, 1st Army. In September 1918, Mitchell massed 1,481 aircraft of American, French, British, and Italian units to support General Pershing's St. Mihiel offensive. Mitchell emphasized concentrated mass attacks to overwhelm enemy air power and punish German ground forces. In four days, Allied airmen flew 3,300 combat sorties and dropped 75 tons of explosives. Lauded as a success by General Pershing, Mitchell refined his tactics during the Metz-Argonne Offensive of 26 September 1918, where 700 American aircraft faced 500 German planes. By 1918, based on his outstanding performance directing air service combat units over the Chateau Thierry area, the St. Mihiel salient, and the Mos Argonne, Mitchell earned the Distinguished Service Cross for valor and temporary promotion to Brigadier General. By the armistice of 11 November 1918, air power had played an important role in the Allied victory. Although observation, reconnaissance, and artillery spotting remained the most significant missions, close air support, interdiction, and strategic bombardment showed promise. Eclipsing all other roles, the image of the glamorous fighter ace with his brightly painted aircraft, leather jacket, and flying scarf captured public attention. The Army Air Service destroyed 781 enemy aircraft, and 73 balloons at a cost of 289 American aircraft, 48 balloons, and 569 battle casualties. At the end of the war, more than 190,000 men were serving in the air service, 74,000 of them overseas with the American Expeditionary Force. On the same day, the air service halted all inductions of enlisted recruits and began the process of dissolving its forces. Combat groups and wings in Europe were disbanded immediately, but squadrons remained intact to serve initially as the basic demobilization unit structures. Since the Air Service had no clear idea of the authorized final strength for the post-war peacetime, it cut loose men in wholesale batches. The Army in general, and the Air Service in particular, took considerable pains to help discharged enlisted men find jobs after leaving the service. The Army worked closely with federal officials to aid veterans and even allowed some men to remain in the service temporarily beyond their discharge if they had no prospects for work. Air Service commanding officers provided special letters of recommendation to former mechanics and technically trained enlisted men in an effort to help them find employment. On 20th May 1918, President Woodrow Wilson issued an executive order that transferred Army aviation from under the Signal Corps control to the Secretary of War. Later that same month, the Army officially recognized the Bureau of Aircraft Production and the Division of Military Aeronautics as the Air Service. World War I showed the difficulty of coordinating air activities under the existing organization. Thus, the Army Reorganization Act of 1920 made the Air Service an official combat arm of the Army. Controversy and Records, 1920s Air Power Budget cutbacks reduced the 1918 Air Service from 190,000 men to fewer than 20,000. 
Likewise, the $460 million allocation for military aviation in 1919 fell to $25 million in 1920. Even worse, from a technology viewpoint, Congress demanded that new military aircraft use the surplus Liberty engines produced during the World War I buildup. Consequently, the first World War vintage Curtis Jennies and Liberty DH-4 bombers remained in service until the 1930s, despite technological advances in airframe and engine design. As far back as 1919, while Congress debated the size of the post-war establishment, the Air Service mounted shows for all occasions. Scarcely a county fair or patriotic gathering within flying distance of a military airfield operated without an aerial demonstration. Enlisted mechanics might lecture on how to repair the Liberty engine while pilots flew aerobatics overhead. The traveling air shows, known as circuses, coincided with victory loan rallies and in later years provided entertainment at Armistice Day or Washington's birthday celebrations. Enlisted pilots also took part in air shows, including a trio of intrepid flying sergeants who in 1923 put together an act that involved flying a tight V formation while their planes were tied together with cords. Other enlisted pilots offered more routine skills, such as dropping demonstration smoke bombs. A concert effort to achieve records in speed, altitude, endurance, and other areas helped spur aviation advances in the 1920s. In September 1922, Lieutenant James Jimmy Doolittle became the first man to fly across the United States in less than a day. Seven months later, Lieutenants Oakley Kelly and John Macready flew a Fokker T-2 on the first non-stop transcontinental flight. On 6 April 1924, a team of Army pilots departed Seattle in four Douglas World Cruisers, christened the Chicago, Boston, Seattle, and New Orleans, in an effort to fly around the world. Although the Seattle and Boston were lost to a mountain crash and engine failure, respectively, the remaining aircraft completed the circuit 175 days later. In 1925, Jimmy Doolittle achieved a further fame by winning the Schneider Trophy an overwater seaplane race and established a world seaplane record at 245.71 miles per hour. Although less publicized, Doolittle also played a major role in designing and testing instruments for all-weather flying, including an altimeter, gyro, artificial horizon, and radio navigation aids. On 29 September 1929, Doolittle was the first pilot to take off, fly a set course, and land using instruments alone. Air activities through the mid-1920s were relatively limited and generally focused on establishing records, testing equipment, and garnering headlines. Master Electrician Jack Harding and Sergeant First Class Jerry Dobius served aboard a Martin bomber that flew around the rim of the country, starting at Bowling Field on 24 July 1919. Totaling 100 flights and 9,823 miles, Dobius kept the effort from ending almost before it began. Almost immediately after taking off from bowling, he crawled out of the aircraft's left wing without a parachute to repair a leaky engine. In 1920, the Air Corps flew a round-trip flight of four DH-4Bs from Mitchell Field on Long Island to Nome, Alaska. The flight took three months and covered 9,000 miles and the safety record was largely attributable to Master Sergeant Albert Vieira. Toward the end of the decade, airmen were ready to demonstrate even more impressive records. New Year's Day 1929, a team of airmen destined for fame took off in a Fokker C-2, 
featuring a large question mark on the fuselage. The question was simple. How long could they stay in the air? Using a crude air refueling technique pioneered in 1923, Major Carl Tui Spatz, Captain Ira Eker, Lieutenant Harry Halverson, Lieutenant Elwood Pete Quesada, and Staff Sergeant Roy Hui flew the question mark 150 hours and 40 minutes, taking on 5,600 gallons of hand-pumped fuel during 37 air-to-air -air refuelings to travel 11,000 miles. This endurance test proved the unlimited range available with air refueling. The question for world records in the 1920s honed the skills of airmen, advanced aviation technology, and kept military aviation in the limelight. An important group of demonstrations during the 1920s was more closely related to the airplane as an advanced weapon of war. As early as the beginning of the decade, Brigadier General Mitchell was convinced of air power's potential as the primary component of national defense, an award-winning weapon, and aggressively promoted his cause to create an independent air force. Hoping to make this the nation's first line of defense, he challenged the United States Navy, arguing that bombers rendered battleships obsolete. Reluctantly, the Navy agreed to allow Mitchell to test his Martin MB-2 bombers against some captured German ships. Mitchell's airmen sank the 27,000-ton battleship Ostfriesland on 21 July 1921. Despite the four-layer armored hull and watertight compartments, the battleship eventually disappeared into the water. Although Mitchell failed to convince the war or Navy departments, the bombing test spurred carrier-based aviation development. Despite previous air service successes, the Navy remained unconvinced about their vulnerability from the air. Officials eventually turned over to World War I battleships, the USS New Jersey, BB-16, and the USS Virginia, for further testing. A young bombardier, Sergeant Ulysses Sam Nero, earned a slot amongst the 12 air crews selected by General Mitchell to try to sink the battleships. On 5 September 1923, 11 aircraft reached the targets just off the North Carolina coast. The 12th returned to base because of engine trouble. 10 of the aircraft dropped their ordnance far from the New Jersey. Nero, using different tactics than General Mitchell instructed, scored two hits. General Mitchell disqualified Nero and his pilot from further competition, but reconsidered when the remainder of the crews failed to hit the Virginia until they dropped down to 1,500 feet. Nero and the Martin Curtis NBS-1 pilot approached the New Jersey at 85 miles per hour at an altitude of 6,900 feet, from about 15 degrees off the port beam. Using an open wire sight, Nero dropped his first 600-pound bomb right down the ship's smokestack. A delayed explosion lent suspense to the result. But a billowing black cloud signaled the New Jersey's demise, which went down in just over three minutes. Having one bomb left and no New Jersey to drop it on, Nero's aircraft proceeded to the floundering Virginia, where Nero proceeded to administer the coup de grace on the stricken craft. His bomb landed directly on the Virginia's deck. General Mitchell promoted Nero during the next cycle. Frustrated by what he perceived as a lack of progress, Mitchell's public statements were increasingly incendiary. 
when the Navy airship Shenandoah crashed on 5 September 1925, Mitchell issued a press release charging the Department of the Navy and the War Department with incompetency, criminal negligence, and almost treasonable administration of our national defense. Quote, During the ensuing court-martial, Mitchell attempted to transform the trial into a public hearing on air power. Found guilty of, quote, conduct of a nature to bring discredit upon the military service, the court sentenced Mitchell to a five-year suspension from the service without pay. On 1 February 1926, Mitchell resigned from the Air Service to continue the fight for an independent Air Force. Upon his death in 1936, Mitchell fought tenaciously for his vision. He placed his indelible stamp on United States air combat practice and doctrine with his emphasis on massed forces and offensive operations. Mitchell's efforts produced some success for the fledging Air Corps. The Air Corps Act of 1926 greatly improved the status of aviation within the Army. This transformed the Air Service into the Air Corps, provided representation on the General Staff, added an Assistant Secretary of War for Air, and promised expansion to a force of 1,650 officers, 15,000 enlisted men, and 1,800 serviceable aircraft within five years. However, the funding never matched the goal established. Air Corps Tactical School and the Rise of the Bomber, 1930s Air Corps Although technological advances continued into the 1930s, the Great Depression dominated the decade. The technological promise of all metal construction, monoplane design, and advanced power plants met the harsh realities of a shoestring budget caused by reduced tax revenues and economic malaise. Toward the latter half of the decade, powerful totalitarian states including Fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, Nationalist Japan, and the Communist Union of Soviet Socialist Republics threatened Western democracies, but powerful isolationism sentiment limited the United States' military response. Within the Air Corps, leading airmen emphasized doctrinal development through the Air Corps Tactical School. Doctrine, the concepts that are the basis of how to fight, provided ideas for technological requirements, aircraft procurement, strategy, and tactics. The Air Corps Tactical School served as the Military Aviation Doctrine Center from their founding in 1929 as the Service Field Officer School, Langley Field, Virginia. In 1922, the school was renamed the Air Service Tactical School before becoming the Air Corps Tactical School in 1926. Even before the Air Corps Tactical School moved to Maxfield, Alabama in 1931, the school attracted the best and brightest airmen to their faculty, including Harold L. George, Kenneth Walker, Donald Wilson, George C. Kenney, Haywood S. Hansel, and Muir Fairchild. Influenced by Billy Mitchell, Italy's Giulio Duhet, and Britain's Hugh Trenchard, the Air Corps Tactical School faculty emphasized long-range strategic bombardment. According to Air Corps Tactical School lectures, massed bombers would penetrate enemy defenses, bypass field armies and navies, and strike enemy vital centers whose destruction would collapse the enemy's economy. Proper target selection would destroy an enemy's capability and will to fight. In an era before a radar, air power theorists believed effective air defense would be impossible.
they looked to high altitude, speed, and internal armament for defense. These ideas ultimately led the United States airmen to emphasize the high-altitude precision daylight bombardment that characterized much of the air operations during the Second World War. During the interwar period, aircraft mechanics received formal technical training at Chanute Field, Illinois, at what became the Air Corps Technical School in 1926. Perhaps the key to the success of the technical school was the air service system of trade testing. While other branches of the Army returned to the apprentice system of assignment and training, the Army Air Corps continued to use and develop a combination of the Army Alpha Test, Aptitude Tests, and Counseling. Enlisted men who wanted to apply for technical training had to qualify as high school graduates or the equivalent and pass a mathematics proficiency test in addition to the Alpha Test. Finally, a trade test specialist familiar with the actual work personally interviewed each enlisted man. Classes at the technical school started in the fall and usually continued until the following spring. Students had to pay their own transportation to Illinois and, during some periods, lived in relatively crude conditions. Still, the training grew in popularity and by 1938, the technical school had outgrown Chanute, with new branches opening at Lowry Field near Denver, Colorado, and at Scott Field in downstate Illinois. Enlisted men participated in a range of experimental work, including altitude flights, blind flying, aerial photography, and cosmic ray research and the development of the parachute. Whether they were selected as guinea pigs or because they were just interested, enlisted men served as the first to try out new parachute designs, and they eventually took over most of the testing and training. The most prominent enlisted parachutist was Sergeant Ralph Botriel, who tested the first backpack-style freefall parachute on 19 May 1919. Botriel eventually became Chief Parachute Instructor at Kelly Field, Texas, and earned the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1933 for service as an experimental parachute tester. Coinciding with Air Corps Tactical School doctrine, the American aviation industry introduced a series of advanced bombers that encouraged air power advocates. In 1931, the Boeing Airplane Company introduced the B-9, an all-metal, stressed-skin bomber with retractable landing gear capable of 188 miles per hour. A few months later, the Martin B-10 overshadowed the open cockpit B-9. The B-10 also featured an all-metal, monoplane design with retractable landing gear and closed cockpit and glazed gun turrets, variable pitch propellers, wing flaps, and an internal bomb bay with power-driven doors. On 19 July 1934, Colonel Henry H. Hap Arnold led a squadron of B-10s from Washington, District of Columbia, to Anchorage, Alaska, covering 4,000 miles in 25 flying hours. Bomber theorists saw this exploit as a validation of their ideas. In February 1934, a crisis arose that tested both the leadership and the flying skills of the Air Corps when President Franklin D. Roosevelt canceled airmail contracts with civilian airlines. Without a thorough analysis of Air Corps capabilities, General Foulois asserted that the Air Corps would pick up the slack until contracts were renewed. However, the Air Corps underestimated the challenge posed. Army airmen attempted to fly mail routes in open cockpit planes with primitive instruments in one of the worst winters recorded. 
In three months, the Air Corps lost 66 aircraft and suffered 18 fatalities. The airman fiasco forced Foulois to resign and led to a congressional investigation known as the Baker Board. The Baker Board scrutinized Air Corps operations and recommended the creation of a single command for all combat aircraft, known as the General Headquarters Air Force. Brigadier General Frank Andrews assumed command 1 March 1935. Airmen applauded the action as a means to consolidate command, centralize doctrine, and integrate training. The initial cadre included 17 command units, 3 wings, 10 groups, and 4 squadrons. Today's Air Combat Command traces their heritage to General Headquarters Air Force. Among other measures, the General Headquarters Air Force called for a bomber capable of carrying a 2,000-pound payload for 1,020 miles at a speed of 200 miles an hour. The Martin and Douglas Company's advanced designs but the Boeing's Model 299 was what excited the General Headquarters Air Force staff. In August 1935, the four-engine aircraft flew 2,100 miles nonstop from Seattle, Washington to Dayton, Ohio, averaging 232 miles an hour. The B-17 Flying Fortress, paired with the Norden Bombsite, revolutionized bombardment and promised to validate Air Corps tactical school theories. 